Hello, my name is Kathy Bissell. Welcome to the Golf Show 2.0. Today we have some special guests from the Golf Heritage Society and they're going to show us some of their collection or collections and we're also going to have a chance to uh, see a little bit inside the collection of Marion Golf Club, all of the memorabilia and historic artifacts that they have saved over the years. So Gary, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guests. Thanks, Kathy. We've got George Petro, at-large director, or at yeah, at-large director of the Golf Heritage Society. He's in the bottom right there where Charlie Weaver usually used to sit. <laughs> and uh, we've got John Capers III, past president of the GHS, historian of Marion. And John is currently in the archive room at Marion Golf Club. John, I want you to look around and let me know if there's a crate in there that's marked Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> yeah, I got a feeling there's so much cool stuff in there that that maybe is where they put that crate. What do you think? That's actually the box I'm going to end up in. <laughs> well, just remember when the angel starts flying around, keep your eyes closed. That seems to work. No question about it. But they all hit feathery, so it's not too, too much of a problem. Well, well we're going to look at some U.S. Open memorabilia because... Yeah. This next week is U.S. Open week. And George, what better time? to start us off with some incredible artifact that was not included in the Ark of the Covenant crate. <laughs> I'd be glad to. Fantastic. You know, I um, I started collecting uh, in 92, basically clubs. And then I saw something that was going to be in an auction. And it was the winner's medal for the 1955 U.S. Open. Wow. And this gold gleaming yeah. thing was sitting on a table, and I said, "You know, how do you get that? And you got to, you know, you got to come to our auction in a few months." So I decided I had to have it. It was just that's it. I mean, some so things who, are cool. who, orig who originally won that? This was Jack Fleck, and oh, so yeah. the, the story in '55. And at that time, I I didn't care who won it. I didn't care the story. I, I didn't care anything. It was just like the coolest thing. And then once I got it, actually, I had it in my pocket for like two weeks. <laughs> I, um, but then, as you say, you learn the story and every one of these items or almost all these items, you know, have a story. And that's what just enhances it so much. I mean, to, to say a few things about Jack Fleck, um, I mean, this would have been Hogan's fifth USO, which he wanted dearly. And so he came to Olympic Club expecting, you know, high hopes, you know, and he was the favorite by far. And so um, Jack Fleck was this um, Iowa Muni Pro driving range pro, and um, he loved Hogan. And he actually wrote a letter to Hogan earlier in the year and said, hey, could I try some of your new clubs? And Hogan invited him to Fort Worth, took him to the factory. They made him clubs, and Hogan actually delivered the wedge and sandwich to a set on that Monday of U.S. Open Week. So... Wow. You know, and so, you know, Fleck was overjoyed and Fleck loved Hogan. Well, anyway, just to make what could be a really interesting story for me, short, they came down to the fourth round and Hogan is leading at Olympic Club. And um, they go, you know, it's it. Now, who's right behind him? Sneed, Boros, and Tommy Bolt. So the world's going, you know, can those guys catch Hogan? Well, all week long, there'd only been four rounds in the 60s, all players, all days. And Hogan shoots 70, lowest round of the day. Almost everybody's in. He's got a five-shot lead on Sneed and Bolt. 
And literally, they crown him the fifth Open winner. And Gene Saracen's there, says congratulations. They sign off TV off the air and say, um, you know, the winner of the U.S. Open, Ben Hogan is fifth. Fantastic. Um, Hogan flips his ball to Joe Dye, the, the commissioner of the USG, and says, put this in the museum, his ball. Wow. So what happens is Fleck's still out there, though. He left. He teed off an hour later, and they tell him, you know, if you make a birdie coming in, you could tie Hogan. Well, he immediately bogeys that hole, so now it's done. He says, well, maybe I can make two birdies. And his playing <laughs> partner, Gene Little, goes, well, if you make two birdies, you still got to make two pars. Now everybody was shooting like 80s, so <laughs> this is going to be impossible. Well, that morning, Fleck, who was a very religious guy, well, he's shaving in the mirror, says an angel comes to him, and he swears by it, the pun, pardon the pun, and um, says the answer says, you're going to win the Open today. You're going to win the Open. And so, okay, he felt pretty confident. Well, he birdied two of the last four holes, got into the playoff with Hogan, and the final thing was in the playoff, um, uh, Hogan was one down. Coming to the, he just birdied 17 from two down. And one down, got to 17, got to 18, says, I can birdie this hole. It's the shortest par four up the hill. And his foot slips, hooks the ball into the knee-deep stuff, takes three to get out, hits it on the green in five, makes a ridiculous downhill putt for double, and Fleck wins the open. Now, just two more quickie items. Here's the ball that Fleck won the uh, Open with. The title is seven. His lucky title is seven. A few little scuff marks on it, but not too bad. And, um, you know, this famous, this is a famous photo of um, Hogan fanning Fleck's putter at the end. So that <laughs> was like, uh, you know, that was one of those, the story, you know, I wanted the medal, but I found out the story was just as good. Well, you know what? There's a sim not exactly the same, but a similar kind of thing with Johnny Miller when he won at Oakmont. Is yep. that some lady he didn't know came up to him ahead of time and told him that he was going to win the U.S. Open, and he just dismissed her. And he had several things like that happen during the week, and he had voices from above telling him to open up his stance, and 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 the voice even corrected him. He said, "No." more open than that you know <laughs> so yeah. he's making a yeah, bunch so of changes and these predictions are coming that he's gonna yeah. win it so who are we to know hey yeah, george so why does why does jack fleck not have the ball and his medal um that's a good question did, i'll did tell you, you ever contact him about that and try to find no, see if he wanted him back <laughs> here's what happened he um went moved to arkansas later and he and he won other turns. Won the Phoenix Open. He was he was a good player. He um, but he opened a course and as a religious guy, he opened this course called um, a little bit of heaven was the name of his course. Well, it rained like heck in like 1990-91, flooded the course, and because he had to make payments to the bank and he wasn't poor, but he said I can do one of two things: I can put my clubs up, the Hogan clubs. Or I can put the U.S. Open medal and ball up. Okay. So he decided that because he was so into Hogan and he wanted those clubs so badly, yep. he put them in auction. And then the underbidder was actually San Francisco was Olympic Club themselves. And oh. but I said no. I go no. They're getting, they're they don't want it as bad as I want it. So that's, <laughs> all that that's a great story, John. 
<laughs> what do you got from Marion U.S. Open related that's going to blow our socks off? Although that's kind of redundant to even say that it's going to. I know it is. I'll tell you what. We'll get to, we'll get to that in, in a moment. But you're telling the story, George, about uh, the Angel, or you're going to win it. Apparently, when Justin Rose played in uh, Tiger's tournament here at Aronimic the year before the Open in 13 and 12, mm -hmm. there's a little girl standing around the putting green. And she finally caught Rose's eye, and this was on Sunday, and she told him, you know, I, I like you a lot. I know you're going to play well, and you're going to win today. Well, darned if he didn't. Wow. Fast forward a year. Now, Rose doesn't tee off until, what, 2.20 or something on the afternoon on Sunday? At 8 o'clock that morning, he and his wife are in a Starbucks in Haverford, Pennsylvania. And lo and behold, there's the little girl with her father, and her brother and her father goes over to Justin and says, I've got somebody that I think you want to see. Well, you know, he's a great <laughs> gentleman he walks over and he all of a sudden realizes who it is. And she just stands up and looks at him and says, you're going to win today. Don't worry about it. And these weird things do happen. So yeah. <clears throat> John, do you have her phone number and does she pick, does she pick Take stocks? Her. And uh, <laughs> how is she on DraftKings? That, that I don't know. <laughs> That's a great one, Gary. I mean, the point is, yeah, he should have taken her around, but uh, a yeah. neat little lady. And by the way, she was at the 18th green when he came in. That's awesome. So he met her again. Um, he never told us that story, did he, Gary? Well, it's 10 years ago, Kathy. You're pushing it for us to remember <laughs> detail from 10 years ago. I, we might have been busy writing about how Phil Mickelson didn't win it again. Yeah, he lost another open. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's the king of second. Um, but Marion's been fortunate to have had a number of Opens. And the first one, of course, was in 1934 when Olin Dutra won it here. But here again, time and place is what makes things happen. That was the first Open that Ben Hogan ever played in. And, of course, 16 years later, he comes back in 1950. And they get into a playoff between Hogan, Fazio, and Mangrum. To begin with, Hogan had played a number of practice rounds, and they had to get from 15 down to 14 clubs. There was a 15-club rule in the PGA at that time. Oh. And the reason was the PGA did not want their members to have to take a club out to put a sand wedge in, which one of their members had created. So Hogan plays a number of practice rounds and decides, to his mind, there's no seven-iron shot at Marion. So the seven-iron came out of the bag, and he did not have it there during the entire tournament. The other club that disappeared was after – he hit the one iron on 18 on the 72nd hole. In those days, it was local caddies. So they brought them in, and they put the bag on the rack, just like they do today when you finish a round. Somebody obviously walked by and just grabbed the tallest iron, jacked it out, and walked away with it. The one iron disappeared. He did not have it in the bag for the next day. But he hit his tee shot on Saturday and Sunday within about three feet of each other. And on Sunday, in the practice round, and the playoff round, he did hit a four iron, not any other club. And that's what the man told me, and I'm going to go with it. Now, when you're in a tournament like that in a playoff, somebody keeps an official scorecard for each one of the players. Yes. But Fazio kept his own scorecard with all three players' scores on it. Wow. It's the only known card that has all three. And then, of course, thank you very much, Mr. Fazio. When it was over, he had a guy by the name of Hogan sign it. 
So that's, that's one of the, incredible. One of the treasures from. I wonder why they didn't use just golf genius on their cell phones. Like uh, I had to do today. That's crazy. Listen, listen, that's better than cuneiform. I mean, they're getting, they're coming up in the world in 1950. Yeah. yeah so, well, you know, that's really unusual. It's a, it's, it's a card that we got uh, two years ago. And one of the interesting things about how we acquire stuff here at Marion is none of it's paid for by the club. And about 50% of the donations over 150 a year come from members, 40% from guests and 10% from the staff. So that's how we get unique pieces back and forth. And then we have a group of people that I refer to as the angels if we need something. Okay. And every once in a while, something is donated. Now, 1950 was the open. The next one was 71. And we have the putter that Jim Simons used. He was the last amateur to lead the U.S. Open after 54 holes. Actually, he led it after 68 holes. And when we received that, we received not only his bag tag, his player's badge, but also, as George knows, his gold medal for finishing low amateur in the Open that oh, year. Okay. So if that was 71, along comes 81, and David Graham ends up winning the Open. So he gave us his bullseye putter, which has his name, which I'm sure is going to be difficult to see if at all possible, has his name engraved on it. Yep. But he had lead tape on the bottom, not on the back where the sweet spot is. And I asked him about that. Now, remember, this is pre- this is 1981. And he said, well, yeah, but I can hit that club about a hundred yards left-handed. So it's my go-to rescue club if I'm under a tree, but I'm not there very often. <laughs> I've never heard, I've never heard, heard of that. That's incredible. Well, the Me crazy either. thing is it's the putter. He also won the PGA with in, in 70, uh, 79. And it's got a, an odyssey grip on it, which is the third grip he's had he had on the club. He had a much bigger flat grip all the way around, and it was declared illegal, so he had to change it. Okay. So in but 71. Jim, Jim Simons is from uh, Jim. I live in Pittsburgh. Jim Simons is from Butler, just north of here in the absolutely Butler Country Club. When they built a new snack bar, they named it after him. So. Well, he was a uh, he was a great a great amateur, a good player, and uh, tragic early death. He had all sorts of eye problems and other medical problems, but his family wanted his medal to come to Marion, and we were very oh, gracious awesome. grateful to have it. Uh, it's made a difference. Justin Rose has been great. We've got the driver that he used. So if that's the ecstasy of the 2013 Open, the agony is we got the wedge that Roy McElroy stepped on on the 11th hole on Sunday when he broke it uh, a couple of days later. So that's the agony and the ecstasy, the good, the good driver and the broken wedge. That's great. George, have, why don't you give us something else? What else you got? Well, we're talking, you know, we're talking about great shots like Hogan's one iron to 18 um, that, you know, got him in the playoff had he not made par. Well, this, this, it happens to be another medal because I'm kind of a medals guy is, you know, what I've gotten into this That's is amazing. the winner's medal for the 1897 U.S. Open. And, oh. um, well, you know, I just want to let people know that as collectors of golf, like I was a rock and mineral collector. 
And I've always been a collector because I like stuff. But I went to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show, and I saw the most beautiful museum-quality stuff. And they were hundreds of thousands of dollars in the 1980s. I go, I cannot collect museum-quality specimens. And when I discovered golf, I go, you can collect museum-quality specimens. So we folks at the Golf Heritage Society, you know, we all have our own little niche. So it's kind of a fun place to learn and show off a little bit and share. But anyway, come back to my 1897 U.S. Silver Medal, which I had a scour of the earth. I heard about it. It took me about 20 years to come up with it. That's that's Sometimes the fun is the story is the item itself. It's the chase. But, it, the chase, absolutely. But this was won by a guy named Joe Lloyd. I won't go into his story, but it's an interesting one. But he beat Willie Anderson, Okay. In the, on the last hole, and Willie Anderson won four U.S. Opens. That's a record. And that's what Hogan was trying to beat and get his fifth. Well, Willie Anderson um, had four. And he beat him by – Lloyd needed birdie on the last hole to tie. And the last hole at Chicago Golf Club, Wheaton, Illinois, yeah. it's 461 yards. Now, that was a long par five. Yeah. And this is gutter ball era. So this is not rubber call. You know, 425 was a par five in 1911. And this is before the balls went 30 yards further. Well, he hit a drive that floored everybody. They said the longest drive anybody would seen. He hit his spoon onto the green and made the 20-footer for Eagle, which the newspaper said the crowd fainted. But then it, was like, it was literally a circus. So he made Eagle on 18 to win by one and beat Willie Anderson, which kept him from getting his fifth. And the thing about it is we can go. So it took almost 100 years until a U.S. Open winner had to birdie 18 to win. You know, there were people who made birdies, but they didn't need it to win. And there were people that you know made a birdie, but they're already up by four. Well, I put that and like a lot of people talk about Corey Pavin, not to put anybody down, but Corey Pavin's four wood to eight at Shinnecock in 95. That, that was, was on the green. Yeah, great shot, but he two-putted. He didn't make and the putt. Yeah, He didn't make the putt, and he still won by two. He could have bogeyed the hole. He could have duffed the shot and still would have won the U.S. Open. So I put this up there with Hogan's one iron to 18, Tiger making putts uh, against Rocco at Torrey Pines, and uh, Watson's chip in on 17 at Pebble. So, you know, that's the that's that's the takeaway story from that. Now, he lived in Poe, France. That's where he was a pro. Yeah. And they gave him a medal, congratulating him for winning the 1897 U.S. Open. So even in France, in 1897, it was a pretty big deal to win the U.S. Open. Didn't wow. you say that was the only golf course in, in Europe or in continental yes. Europe at the time? Poe Golf Course was the first golf course in continental Europe. And he was the pro there. It's that course started in 1856. He was the pro in the 1880s. For and people who don't know, from England, Joe for Lloyd, people who don't yes, know where yeah. that that right. is, it's almost at the Pyrenees. It's Pyrenees. great far exactly. southern France. Exactly. Oh yeah, you, yeah, that really explains it for America's geographically yeah. challenged well, well, populace. Spain and France meet. Yeah. It's the Pyrenees Mountains mm -hmm. and France. All the, yeah, all all the on rich, one yeah. side and. It's just to the right of Maine and Vermont for you people, for most <laughs> Americans. I mean, the rich Americans would go, the rich people from England too, but rich Americans go there. And they hired him to come back to America in the summertime to teach people. And Joe Lloyd was at um, uh, Essex, Essex okay. um, in Manchester, 
where the criticism was, and when Joe Lloyd left his pro, some guy named uh, Donald Ross became his replacement. Uh, but uh, so Joe Lloyd spent a few summers here and did well in the U.S. Open. And that's won cool. one and came in like seventh and fourth and others. At, at one point, uh, Poe had wicker baskets instead of flags also. Oh, okay. Oh. Well, that, we won't ask who had them. I got you by one, George. <laughs> you got me there, baby. That's awesome. <laughs> what do you got? We'll show something. Yeah, hey, Don, the 1980, 1981 U.S. Open that David Graham won, that was actually my first U.S. Open covering it as a writer from the Milwaukee Journal. So uh, I remember that one as much as any of the other ones, which is not that much, but uh, probably because of that, Marion's probably always been my one of my top three favorite courses in the world. But anyways, what else What else have you got in the American, Marion archives there? Well, a, a lot of what we've got here follows the 20 USGA events that have been played, 18 of them played on this golf course, uh, whether it's the most recent one, which was the Curtis Cup, where the Americans won last year. Uh, Rosie Zhang played so well that they almost didn't have to play on Sunday. <laughs> If they had won one more singles match on Saturday, it would have closed out the Curtis Cup. Unfortunately, it didn't happen because that would have been embarrassing all the way around, maybe even for both sides. <clears throat> but um, a lot of what is, is acquired here, uh, Justin Rose's shoes from the last round on Sunday, for instance, signed by him. And I had a young man in here a couple of years ago who just thought Justin Rose walked on water. And he was only about seven or eight, very small feet. So I said, well, Hey, Dad, tell him to take his shoes off. He's in the archives room. And he does. Why am I doing this? And then I put the shoes down. I said, here, stand in Justin Rose's shoes. <laughs> and the toes of both of them were signed. So those are the types of things that, that have happened here. And so much of it also comes from the Golf Heritage Society. You know, we're in our 50-plus years now. Uh, it's a group of over 1,000 people. Some people think we're all nuts. Some people realize that we are the, the backbone of collecting uh, golf material and golf memorabilia in the United States. And anybody can join the GHS. Uh, we love to have people there. It's golfheritagesociety.com. It not, it's not about collecting as much as it is, to me, preserving these, well, these storied it, items. It, it's preserving, and it's a, it's a forum from which you can find out damn near any question that you might have, whether it's about your club, yourself, your family, uh, somebody would ask George, for instance, well, do you know who played in this British Open? I think my uncle did, and he made the cut. We can help people find that type of information. And here at Marion, uh, there's a large uh, PowerPoint presentation to help clubs learn how to start their own archives. Oh, that's and the GHS can help people learn how to start collecting. Joe Murdoch, one of the founders, was so right one day when he said, don't buy anything unless it's in really good shape and shoot for the best shape possible. Let it go by. Collecting is like streetcars. There's always <laughs> another item coming down the pike, yep. and it's probably better than the one you wanted. So <laughs> golfheritagesociety.com is where people can get started. Now, now, John, you were telling me uh, before we started all of this uh, discussion uh, about the literally the thousands of items that you have at Marion and that you make them available for people who are doing research. Why don't you expand on that a little bit? Well, there are over 300,000 digitized documents in the collection, and they are all character referenced. So anybody who wants to come here and do some research on any subject that is Marion related, and sometimes even more than that, um, 
one of our members of the committee, um, uh, Wayne Morrison, is an architectural nut. So he happened to have all of the original blueprints of the Lido Club out on Long Island before it was destroyed. So now they go to build another Lido. And one of our former uh, interns was applying for the job. Well, we fed him more information about the Lido Club than Lido had. <laughs> and we've been able to help a number of young men and also on the, the grounds crew when they go for superintendent's jobs. So sure. I'm dealing yeah, I'm with look, a couple I'm looking of forward to playing that recreation that Mike Kaiser did of Lido in Wisconsin. I think it's going to open this later this summer. Yeah, it's open. You're absolutely right. Uh, and it'll be a great job. Uh, they've, they've done a lot of research to find out, you know, what it really is and how it was structured and uh, how it, why it went away really too. But Anything. You know that the eighty-one uh, open at Marion was the impetus behind uh, Forrest Fesler's famous wearing shorts at Oakmont. <laughs> a story he told me uh, a few years ago. He's unfortunately passed, but and the short version is he was with John Schroeder, notoriously slow, and John Brody. He was shooting like eighty something, and P.J. Boatwright had him on the clock or whatever. He was he was looking to get him. And Schroeder hit a shot up over a bunker. They didn't, they're somewhere up there on the 16th hole. They never didn't see it. And they're looking, they're looking, they're looking, and uh, they, they aren't going to find it. So Schroeder's going to about to take a drop. And they know they're behind. Uh, Fessler has gone, walked up ahead then, above past the bunker, and he gets up there, boat right standing there watching these guys. And he walks up, and there's a ball right by Boatwright, and he says, what's this? And Boatwright didn't say anything. It's Schroeder's ball. He was standing there the entire time they looked for this lost ball and didn't say anything. Can't help him, legally. Well, he was going to – He, it, it, yeah, well, at the end of the round, he, Boatwright slaps the whole group with two shots for slow play. I, Fez, I, they were irate. Fessler went in. They had a meeting up in the room. And the USGA guys were shocked that Boatwright would let that would do that, and they said no penalty, but don't tell anybody in the press. And he, Forrest, held on to that story for 20, 30 years, and he he knew his last open was going to be Oakmont, so he wore the shorts on the one hole to just kind of give him a coming down 18. Him, well, you're too young to remember, but in '68 when we played at the uh, at Scioto for the amateur. And uh, Fessler was wearing a pair of jeans that he had cut the bottom, so they were totally frayed. Oh, no. And he just drove Boatwright nuts wearing yeah. those. Well, yeah, Boatwright had it in for two of the three guys. Brody didn't care about, but Schroeder was notoriously slow player. Yeah. George, let's go back to you. I know you've got a stash. And we're going <laughs> to, these stories are so good, we're going to run out of time, but. <laughs> Then let's let try to let's this. go through as much as we can here. Let, let me push you to something that's like uh, anybody can play with. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, 81 was your, oh, I think you said 81 was your first open. Like my first open was Baltusrol 93. And so there's the tickets, you know, and that's part of my little collection. If you want to, you know, if, so if you want to collect tickets from the years you've been, go ahead. Um, you can take it another step further. Like here's my little, I just made this up today for you guys. These are pins. I mean, very easy to collect. These things aren't that expensive at all. This is on the end. This is a, um, a sectional qualifier, low score medal. Now it happens to be from Minnesota, 48 Hogan's first win, but I mean, 
you can find those things on eBay or elsewhere. I mean, the thing next to it, the wow. orange thing, that's a player's badge from from right. uh, 55. So one of the players in the 55 Open is wearing it. Middle, Ray Floyd's, um, if you win the Open, you can come to all the rest of the Open. Just wear your badge you're in. You don't need tickets. Or if you're on the USGA committee, this guy in the end, the, the bronze one, wow. he was yeah. a book collector. He was a book collector, Otto Probst, and he was part of the USGA committee, and he donated his the, the most pro, fantastic library to the USGA. But what I mean, what, kind, of, what kind of estimated value would that player's badge have, George? I mean, just uh, player's badge. Um, this one probably about three hundred, two to three hundred bucks, so not much. I mean, the 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 um, the dangling one on the ribbon that might only be a hundred bucks, because I don't know who won it. You know, like Ray Floyd's might push grand, but I'm just saying, but like, for instance, you can collect programs. Here's a Baltusrol 1980 yep. signed by Jack. I think I I've mean, got a, can... I think I've got a 71 uh, program. I could be wrong though, but I, I've got some old programs. I love exactly. programs. So they're collectible. People put them together from the teens up. This one has to be signed by Jack. You know, you mentioned price, couple hundred bucks. You'll probably do it. I mean, these were very, like here's Ernie Els, one at Congressional signed a scorecard. Lee Jansen, 93. You know, I mean, I picked these up at our Golf Heritage Society trade shows. Like 20 bucks a piece. That's incredible. It's incredible you can get that. George, uh, I'm going to stop giving you all that stuff. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, here, I'll get you one last thing. I mean, like, here's a tiger sign flag. Good flag. Yeah. But, you know, most flags don't go for that much. I mean, a tiger sign U.S. owned flag might be a grand. But, you know, this is... It may not have been the most exciting U.S. Open in history, but um, it was the it most. It was the foggiest U.S. Open in history. Knocked my off U.S. Open in history. Well, so, I hope I you're going to. Go uh, if you have any Marion-related stuff, I hope you're eventually going to send it John's way. I have one trophy from Marion. I've I was lucky enough. The GHS invites their members to Oakmont, to Marion. John puts on an incredible show at Marion. So if you're a member, you just show up and uh, sometime in March or April. And I saw the archive. I mean, I, I could have spent four days there. And I found out that I have a trophy that um, was won at Marion, but the winner is the guy who like bought the land and gave it or sold it to Marion where the current course is. So he, you know, and I was like, okay, so guess where that's going to go one of these days. All of these things, I know where my medals are going to go. I mean, some of these medals, like my Olympic, that Olympic medal, will, I'll probably have somebody arrange, but I'm not quite ready to give them up. I think, yeah. you know, Gary, that's also what's extremely important. You look at what uh, George has got, what a lot of us have got at home. Most of the families don't give a darn about it. And not only that, yeah. they don't know what to do with it if we got hit by a bus. And that's what the GS, GHS can help them do. Uh, they know who the, the dealers are, the collectors, the other people. So we try to help the universe of golf collecting uh, by doing things like that and trying to get the material into the right person's hands at the right time. I wonder if Olympic would be interested in the crutches that I had from San Francisco after I broke my ankle on their eighth hole. Did you, well, <laughs> they might if you didn't sue them. <laughs> I didn't sue them, but I should have sued somebody. Well, then sign them, Kathy, and make them make them think that it's really worth something. I will. <laughs> John, you John, you've probably besides all the medals and the, all that stuff, you've got archives. I assume you've probably 
somebody at Marion has tracked down every newspaper clipping, every everything you can find on anything related to Marion. Have you got books full of stories and all that stuff? That's how it started over 50 years ago. What we wanted was really just a repository of information about what took place on this property. So we went online and we downloaded every time the word Marion was mentioned in all the local newspapers. Then we branched out from there to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor. Those all had good sporting sections. Yeah. And after we'd done that, then we said, hey, wait a minute, there's one more area. Let's try and go to the hometown newspapers of those people who had won here. That put us in the 100,000 plus document collection area just to start. And now it's over wow. 300,000. Of that, about 115,000 are just photographs going back to 1912 of what this golf course looked like and how it evolved over the years. So that was a tremendous help uh, when we redid the golf course a couple of years ago. We redid the greens. We did not change the routing or the structure, but uh, we took care of that. Gary, guess what it's time for? Our shameless plug. Shameless plug. Subscribe now. It's free. Click like. Click subscribe. You're not going to be in a mailing list. <laughs> You're just going to get a new episode when we do it. And our goal, I know it's lofty, but we're still trying to earn that first 17 cents, which I'm pretty sure Paige Spiernak did in her first nine seconds online. <laughs> but, uh, well, I can't talk Kathy into doing some of the things Paige does. So we're still trying <laughs> to get the first 17 cents. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. What, um, what great stuff. Uh, the next meeting, John, I'm, I'm, if I'm available, I'm coming to Marion because it, it sounds like too much fun. And then we're going to George's house for the after party. <laughs> Gary, just make sure if you maintain your membership in the GHS, you'll be on the list. All right. Excellent. Okay.